Hello and welcome back to Venture Studio. I'm your producer, Kevin Weeks. This week, Dave interviews Michael Yavanditti, the founder and current CEO of Yieldmo and an active angel investor in New York City. If you're a fan of the studio, you can find more episodes at VentureStudio.org or SoundCloud.com slash Venture Studio. Subscribe on iTunes and never miss an interview. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Prior to founding Yieldmo, Mike worked at AltaVista, was CEO of Quigo, which he sold to AOL in 2007 for $360 million. He founded Hashable, and he began a career as an angel investor. In this episode, Michael and Dave discuss Yieldmo, some thoughts on startup company boards, and how Mike spots entrepreneurs who he wants to invest in. You can find Mike on Twitter, at Mike Yavo. Now, let's send it on up to the Venture Studio office with Dave Lerner and Mike Yavanditti. In the office, baby. Going up. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm great, thank you. You know, um, I haven't talked to you in a long time, and I think it's because you've been uh, heads down really working on this new company, and everyone uh, I talk to in the city says, oh, Yavo, he's really, he's really heads down. You know, this thing is growing like a weed. Why don't we start off by you telling us, what is Yieldmo? This is your second big campaign. What does is, what is the company Yieldmo do? Yieldmo is, a, is really the first design-driven ad company that takes a uh, kind of like an IDEO-style design approach to mobile advertising. So everyone likes to talk about the mobile ad problem Mobile ads are broken, they look terrible, all that sort of thing. Well, we are the company that's fixing it. I've hired a bunch of the, the top designers in the world, two of them from IDEO, and we've built uh, a very sophisticated mobile ad product. We have uh, 1,200 publishers now using it. Uh, we're growing 300% a year. We will grow 300% this year. We will also grow 300% again next year, and that's off a base of tens of millions in revenue. Wow. So very few companies in any category have ever grown 300% when their revenue is in the tens of millions. That's outrageous. You know, it's probably not as fast as Slack or Zenefits, but it's pretty close. Amazing. And I heard you have and no this. One knows and no one knows. <laughs> right. No one, not a single VC has called us, not a single reporter, nothing. Even though we're, we're by at the end of next year, we will probably be if not the biggest, very close to the biggest revenue company in New York. Mike, are you trying to say you're building another non-sexy, quiet colossus like Quigo? Well, this is, this is much sexier because uh, we're using design and we're using a human-centered design approach to, to building mobile ads. Um, so in a lot of ways, this is a much more sophisticated concept and idea than Quigo. But we are quiet and we are... Uh, we do have our heads down, and no one really knows about us, and that's part of our strategy. I don't want people to copy us. So, and you have this really sophisticated ad lab that you created. What what is that all about? It's the first of its kind. Um, it's not. A, we don't make ads uh, for advertisers. What we do is make advertising formats, which are templates, which are systems that can be reused over and over again. We build them and then we test them hundreds of millions or billions of times and then we force everyone into our constraint. 
And so every month we invent something new, we file, we test it, we file patents, and then we bring it to Madison Avenue. And so Intel is our biggest advertiser now spending five, six hundred thousand dollars a month. Uh, and they're seeing better performance than they see with even, even Google. Wow. And, and I've noticed you've raised significant amount of capital from Union Square Ventures. I believe Google Ventures invested in you. What, That's what's correct. The, yeah. What's the status with that? We've raised $22 million. We, we're, we have plenty of capital. And, you know, when, look, when you're growing 300% a year, you're not going to have trouble raising money. So uh, we haven't had any trouble. We've, we've had the, the right investors. Time Warner is also an investor. And, uh, yeah, like I said, next year um, we could hit $100 million in revenue, which is, which is phenomenal. We, we're probably going to go from, you know, $30 million to $100 million in one year. We've never seen another ad tech startup, any ad startup other than a Google, Facebook, Twitter, ever do that. And so we're on, we're on, if all goes well, we're going to, we're going to have that kind of, that kind of year in the next 12 months. Human centered design. You, you mentioned that's a big part of the approach here. How did you learn about it? How did you get into that whole world? I I think it's a fascinating area. Well, one of my areas of expertise has always been AB testing and experimentation. Uh, some of my, my patents from the past have been in that area. Chris Dixon famously talks about when you hook up with a founder, you want to hook up with people that know things that other people don't know. And what I know is that uh, there's incredible leverage that can be garnered from A-B testing and experimentation. Uh, But most people don't know how much leverage. Uh, It it is a lot more than people think. And so we started off by building our own kind of like optimizely for ads. We started to learn very early on that design could be used as a form of optimization and color and animation and doing things in very subtle ways, but doing things in ways that do not uh, impede a user's access to content, do not pop things up on screens, do not float things on screens, do not try to trick people into clicking, do not any of those things. So we spotted that as an opportunity three years ago before the rise of ad blockers, before anyone was really screaming and yelling about, about ads, I spotted that as a problem. And so we are a mission purpose company. We're trying to fix, we're trying to put all the pop-up ads out of business. The human centered approach for mobile advertising is something that people who are using it probably enjoy. That's a different paradigm altogether. In the past, it was, you were completely annoyed by it. Right. We're actually trying to make ads that users find tasteful that users don't mind engaging with that users uh, on an individual or aggregated basis will accept on a page and we think that's a really big idea it sounds easy but it's extremely hard you have to build a lot of technology a lot of infrastructure to do it and most ad companies are not frankly set up to even build that kind of infrastructure and so we think we have a huge advantage and that's why our, our numbers are so good um, it's working extremely well. All right. Now I know where you've been and why we haven't talked in about two years. Right. Uh, <laughs> you've been totally, told, but this is a conscious thing. You, I, no one sees you out anymore. You don't go to events. That's you right. You do a lot of speeches. You don't talk okay. uh, to the press that much. This is a conscious thing on your part. It's very conscious. Look, when you, when you know you have the goods and you know you're not going to benefit uh, greatly from running around talking about it, you don't talk about it. And so uh, we know we have the goods, and we know that by, 
by talking too much about it. We're only going to dilute our value in the marketplace. Amazing. I hope I don't get you into trouble by you doing this podcast. Nah, that's all right. You're very nice. You know, Quigo was a massive campaign. You spent five years on it. You had a yep. great result. Uh, you've told me you've thought about quitting lots of times. It was a grind in many respects. Uh, what are you doing different now? How are you smarter this time? Well, I know what not to be afraid of. I, uh, you know, I operated from a position of fear a lot of times at Quigo. I was competing head-to-head with Google. That's a very uncomfortable place to be as a small, as a small startup, especially when you're competing against their core revenue line. Right. And so you, you're, you're always looking over your shoulder. Uh, this time I'm not because uh, for the reasons I described earlier, there, there's a massive amount of infrastructure that needs to be put in place to do this. Most ad companies are just trying to ring the cash register. They don't really care about users uh, and the user level uh, interactions, nor that are they in a position uh, structurally to, to even test or experiment around users. And so I know that I, I have a position. Remember, I, I, what I do is I go directly to publishers. I put my, my code on their pages. So I'm allowed. I see users at a level that most other ad companies cannot see them. And so I have a structural advantage. And I know that. So I operate, I'm not operating from a position of fear. I'm operating uh, from a position of, I'm on offense. That's cool. And I'm on offense. And uh, it doesn't mean that it's, it's any easier this time. There are plenty of challenges, uh, but um, fear isn't one of them. Remarkable. Let me ask you this. Um, you know, you've invested in over 100 companies over the years. I have. Uh, you bring this incredible operational background to bear. How does that inform your approach and philosophy as an investor in startups? Well, I mean, I try to look for people who I think can handle the operational aspects of running a company you know, I don't. I don't think it's it's uh, it's a it's an easy thing to do. It's a very hard. It's very hard to run a real business. It's very hard to to grow and scale a real business. It's very hard to go past the initial traction phase. Um, you need to make a bunch of really good decisions um, in in the right order in order for things to work out. And so, not everybody is 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 set up to do that. And so I try to look for people who I think can do that. And I try to avoid, you know, I have no, no, nothing against two guys who get to a whiteboard and decide they want to be an entrepreneur. But I, I try to avoid those, those types of scenarios because they're, they're less authentic. Yeah. What are the real qualities you're looking for? What, what signals that authenticity and that preparation to, to grind it out to you? Well, I mean, people that are building products that are relevant to their life experiences. Um, look, the one time that I tried to tried to go outside of ad tech was with Hashable, and look, we had we almost we almost made it, but uh, we didn't quite get there. And that's because when I look back, it was because I was operating in a segment in the marketplace where I wasn't one of the best in the world. I wasn't as qualified as other people to tackle that that type of business challenge. Um, when I, you know, when I go back to the area that, uh, that I, that I am an expert in, which is ad advertising and ad tech, I'm, I'm winning again. And so, you know, you don't need to be an MIT, MIT trained scientist to realize why it's because I know things that other people don't know. I see things that other people don't see. 
And so I'm able to operationalize those things. Um, I want to invest in people who can operationalize things they know that other people don't know. And, you know, two guys getting, you know, graduating from, from business school and getting to a whiteboard and deciding that they want to, you know, deliver dry cleaning is, is, you know, it might work. Um, but, but it seems a bit contrived and a bit sort of forced. And I, I try not the few times that I have invested in, in scenarios like that, they've always failed. So, yeah, I totally get the domain expertise aspect of this, but what about the other stuff? Uh, how do you know they have what it takes to, you know, wage a five to seven year, you know, grueling campaign? What, what are the tells, so to speak, that you look for? Let's say they do have domain expertise. How do you know they're built for this? Well, they have to have t- the right temperament. They're, they have to have tenacity. They have to have some, some characteristic or trait that tells me that, that they're in it for the long haul. The other, the other bad trend in the marketplace is people quit. You know, people, you know, after a year or two, they run into trouble and, and they quit. And that's just never been part of my makeup or character. And so, um, you know, I, I look for people who keep their legs moving, keep their feet moving, um, but have tenacity, have, uh, have uh, the ability to raise money, the ability to close the round, the ability to build a board, the ability to put all these building blocks in place. They all matter. And conversely, when you back some founders, what do you look at as your role? What is your job when you invest in them? To be honest with you, I usually don't have a role. I, I, am, I am there if someone needs advice, if someone has problem, an HR problem, a board problem, uh, maybe, maybe a product strategy problem in, in, in and around the ad business, um, I could be helpful and I'm happy to be helpful. In most cases... You know, I'm not someone who's lobbing bombs from the sideline. I'm not trying to be overly active. I'm an operational CEO right now. So I really can't do lots of different things at the same time. Right. You mentioned the board, uh, and we've talked about this over the years. This is something that a lot of people don't talk about. You don't see this written about too often. Mm-hmm. It's kind of still very mysterious. What makes a good board? How should founders approach their board? Well, I mean, they shouldn't. You know, they shouldn't expect a board to, to help negotiate a product roadmap or to help uh, set, you know, strategy for a company. I mean, you should, your, your, your board members are partners. They, they are investors. They're in your cap table. Um, they're there for advice. Um, they're there for, you know, if, if something exotic occurs and you need a sounding board, they should be there for that too. You should be consulting them on a regular basis uh, with your strategic plan, with what's going right, with what's going wrong. But you need to lead your board. You can't expect your board uh, to help you with core strategy. If, you, if, your board is ask, if you're asking your board to make you know, strategic decisions about you know, you know, which way you should take your product, uh, you're not doing it right. I mean, that's not what a board wants to do. You've had a lot of different board members in your companies what qualities have you seen that, that actually make a good board member? Uh, that, that's an easy one. I think the board members who are constructive tend to be the best board members, and board members who are not constructive tend to be the worst board members. And sometimes uh, ill-informed board members 
uh, end up being the least constructive board members. Or sometimes people just like to talk to hear themselves talk, and that's not very helpful either. Um, so look, if you're a board member and you don't have a lot of constructive things to say, then don't say anything. But, you know, in, in my years, the board members that have been the most helpful are the people that have been the most constructive. They're, they're constructive with their criticism. They're also constructive with, you know, how, how they, how they view tough situations, how they, with the advice they dispense, the way that they manage the cadence and rhythm of communication with the CEO, those can all be done in a pleasant or unpleasant way. And, and look, the more experienced the CEO is, the, the, the more the constructive people tend to be. The, least, the less experienced a CEO is, I think that's where people can run into problems. Right. And you've had your share of, you know, let's call it disagreements within a board setting over the years. I know you've been mm-hmm. open about discussions that went on at Quigo when you had your first acquisition offer. How do you approach a situation where some of the board is supportive of what you want to do and some of them are, are basically fighting you on it? Well, I think first thing is uh, if it's an M&A situation, I think you try to be as clear as possible about what the situation is and what your feeling is relative to that situation. I think sometimes if uh, if everyone's not on the same page, you can have problems. But look, I you know I'll be honest. The one the one area where I have struggled over the years, especially as a young CEO, was that fine line between under communicating and over communicating. No, there's no there's no book you can read that tells you exactly how to do that. You have to find it on your own, and it really. It, it depends on who the who the people are on your board. Some will, some prefer that you under communicate with them, and some prefer that you over communicate with them, and and so that's a challenge is finding that line. But look, you you got to be clear with people about what you want, what the management team wants, and if people still fight you on it, then then you have a problem. You know, you have slowed down on the investing of late. I've noticed. Is that because you're running a company, or do you, are there other reasons for it here in New York? Yeah, I've slowed down for two reasons. I am running a company and I'm creating a tremendous amount of value personally and, and for, the, for the company by staying focused. And so I, I owe it to this. This is probably the last time I'll be the CEO of a functional operating company. And so I want to give it 110%. Um, but also I'm a little mindful of where we are in the market cycle. I, I don't, I'm not in the bubble camp. I don't think it's anything like 2000. But... Uh, I am seeing things that I don't like, you know, uh, companies being founded and raising money at five or six or seven million dollar cap, you know, notes and whatnot. I don't like that. I don't think that's a that's a good thing. So I avoid those. Um, I, I I won't invest in a in a in a company that starts off with a cap with a with a note. Why is that? Because I don't, what am I getting? What am I investing in? What's the, you know, I like to buy equity. I like to know what the valuation is uh, that second. I'm not a bank. I'm not in the business of loaning people money uh, and missing that upside. And so I don't really like that structure. And so I typically, my knee-jerk reaction is just to pass on, on those opportunities. Wow. I mean, and this has become in the last three or four years the norm almost. I mean, everybody's raising with a cap a note with a cap, yep. you know, people are saying, well, it's the cap is the valuation essentially, but that still makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. Because a lot of times the cap is too high. 
Right. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it used to be that you know when someone first starts a company, they raise at a two million dollar valuation or two and a half million, and and even that's generous to start with if you think about it. But at least it gives a, a small investor a chance to make to make their money back. And but if cats are you know if, if companies are starting out at five or six or seven or eight million dollar with their cap, it's just very hard to understand how they make a, a big multiple on that. Right. You've also in the past talked a lot about an important skill with entrepreneurs that you look for. Can they hire world class talent? Can they go after it? You've talked about that as being a real sales job. Yeah, I mean. This is a, a very important concept. I, I think a lot of people uh, try to stay lean. They're very careful. You know, hopefully they're careful about their burn rate. They're careful about how much money they're spending, how much money they're raising. Uh, but at some point, if you if you really want to succeed and, and do really well, you need to hire the best people in the world, um, and you need to put them in the right spots, and you need to pay them. And if you need, if, if the best person in the world for a particular function within your company costs two hundred thousand dollars a year, then you got to pay them two hundred thousand dollars a year, and that's just the way the world works. And if you think you're going to get someone that's almost as good or less good, and you're going to pay them less money, well, you're going to get a you're probably going to not get not get the optimal outcome. And so I learned a long time ago that hiring the best people uh, in the world is a really important thing to strive to do. What about situations where things aren't working out with folks? What, what, is the, uh, what have you learned in that arena when you have folks in the company that aren't at the top of their game? You know, how have you evolved over the years? You have to be introspective. You have to be honest with uh, your team members. It's another skill that um, most people are not born with, but you have to learn as a CEO of a company over time that you're not doing anyone any favors by keeping the wrong person in the wrong role for too long a period of time. So I've learned over the years that, you know, in three or four months, you should probably, you know, you'll have a pretty good understanding if someone's working out or not. And if they're not working out, then you have to, you have to find a way either to move them to a new position or to ask them to leave. And, um, you know, after you've done this for 10 or 12 years, uh, if that doesn't become one of the one of your core skill sets, you're you're going to have problems. Right. You mentioned the climate uh, in the investing scene before. What what about the overall climate in New York City? What do you, what are you seeing here in the tech world? You said you're not in the bubble camp, but what what are you what are you feeling? You've always been very prescient about. You know, I remember the real estate problems that were going to come down, and and you always have a kind of a spidey sense of what's going on. So I had to ask you that. What's your feeling? Yeah, um, look, I'm, I'm in some ways I'm heartened by what's going on today. There's less you know, bombastic rah-rah kind of stuff on Twitter about you know uh, what's going on with this company or that company. So I think that's a good thing. There, it, there seems to be less of that, and I think that's a good thing. The rah-rah stuff is kind of gone, and people seem to be focused. Right. So I think I think that's good, and I think that's just sort of a natural sort of process that that has occurred look i think you know there are probably too many companies right now um, but there's also a lot of great diversity in in the new york tech scene so i think that's awesome we're not just about ad tech and media anymore i think that's a great thing 
the real estate game, talking about the real estate market, the real estate market is starting to feel overheated again in New York. That makes me worried. I'm seeing, you know, uh, plenty of signs of that again. Uh, and so, you know, I'm back, I'm starting to think more about there being a real estate bubble in the United States or in pockets around the United States again, rather than a tech bubble. I think the sort of the late stage, you know, sort of craziness around unicorns, I think it's going to take care of itself. I think the whole fidelity thing is going to, is going to help. Yeah. Um, right. They recently wrote down some of their assets, right? Absolutely. That's, that's not going to be well received by a lot of those companies. It's going to create a lot of problems and challenges for some of them, especially as they price options for employees, as they try to use their currency for M and A. If I'm being bought by one of those companies right now, I'm, I'm talking about that markdown, mm-hmm. uh, especially if they want to give me their stock. Right. Uh, so that's going to, that, that might cool things off, but yeah, I'm not in the bubble camp, but I do think there are things that we have to be, have to be mindful of. And, and the real estate market in San Francisco, in New York and LA is bubbleish. Got it. Got it. Very helpful. My friend, thank you so much for time. You're a true original. Uh, thank it's you. always great to hear your point of view. We'll have you back on the show eventually. Be well, my friend. Give you a taste of business, you know?